Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we can all paint our own apocalypse. Our guest is Ruman Alam, the author of 2020 mega-release, Leave the World Behind. If you haven't heard of Leave the World Behind, then I can only assume you've been as isolated and cut off as the characters in Ruman's book. It concerns a family alone in a big house when strangers knock on the door bringing news of dire events in the world. From there on, it's a novel of increasing tension and paranoia, a book that invites you to decide what your end of the world would be. Reviews have been incredible so far, and Roman is everywhere, being interviewed by everyone, so I'm, I'm excited he took the time to speak to me as well. He's a really articulate guy with a lot of thoughts on the place where literary fiction and genre meet, and that's become a bit of a trending theme on this show, and Roman has a take on the issue that I fully appreciate. Along the way, we also talk about crises of masculinity in the modern world. Uh, We ask whether kids are better prepared for the apocalypse than their parents. And we confront the awkward truth of liberal prejudice. And above it all lurks the looming presence of Election Day USA. Sounds heavy, I know, but don't worry. We also chat about movies and we talk about what scares us and all that good stuff. So let's head to New York's Long Island. Pour a drink. Jump in the pool and watch the lights start to go out in the distance. Let's talk scared. So hi, Roman. Um, how are you today and where are you speaking to us from? I am great. Thank you for having me today. I am talking to you from my office at home where... I, I live in Brooklyn, New York, and it's just sort of the first very windy fall day. Kind of feels like winter is in the air, and tomorrow is the presidential election in this country. So it is really the perfect day to think about horror, if you ask me. That's a beautiful little segue into this. <laughs> yeah, so your new novel, Leave the World Behind, is uh, is out now from Bloomsbury and Echo Books. And this book is is huge right now. You've I've, I've been reading your interviews with the likes of Rolling Stone and the Paris Review and GQ. So yeah, thanks for making time for this little fledgling podcast. Of course, of course. I, I love the opportunity to talk to readers, especially readers who are coming at it from a particular perspective, as you are. Yep, we, we all come to it from a fairly kind of macabre um, angle <laughs> on this show, so... So that's good. Um, I read Leave the World Behind in this last week. And as I've said quite vocally on social media, despite the fact that there are no demons or ghosts or monsters, I found it the single most unnerving read of my year so far. Can you tell us a little about it to, to get us going? Sure, sure. Leave the World Behind is it the story of a family of four from a really lovely part of Brooklyn that's not far from where I live with my own family. Um Amanda and Clay. Amanda works as an advertising executive. Her husband, Clay, is an academic. They have two teenagers, Archie and Rose, who are 16 and 13. And as we meet them, they're driving out to a part of Long Island. Um, it's not so it's not where the Hamptons are exactly, which is kind of a chic and fashionable part of this country. It is more quiet, more rural, and they've rented a house there for a week beautiful house with a swimming pool. And they're just looking forward to having their end of summer holiday together. And so we follow them out to this part of Long Island and we spend 48 hours with them as they are going to the beach, going to the pool, having dinner together. Second night of their stay, 
there's a knock at the door and you know, they're in this place where nobody knows where they are. They're not expecting anybody. It's late at night and they open the door and they find an older black couple standing there. And this couple who are named George and Ruth tell them that this house belongs to them, that they're the ones who rented it to them via Airbnb. And they have come to the house because there's been a blackout in New York city. So from there, the book sort of shifts from being a book about a well-off family on vacation to being a book about six people inside of a house trying to figure out what's happening in the world outside of that house. They don't have, their cell phones aren't working. The internet is down. The television has gone out. So they don't have any particular tether to the world. And they're trying to figure out exactly what, if anything, is going on out there. Yeah. And it only gets weirder and darker from there. (laughs) Yeah. I usually stop there because, you know, I don't like I don't normally believe in spoilers, right? Like it doesn't necessarily affect your experience of reading Madame Bovary to know what happens to Emma Bovary. But there is something in this book that I really hope is I hope that the reader feels sort of seduced into the book and wants to discover, you know, the unpredictable turns that it makes for herself. And so I never quite know how to talk about it without, you know, spoiling some of those experiences for the reader. So but I'm I'm happy to talk about what actually happened. So whatever you want to ask me, knowing that as the premise, though, that is sort of basically the premise. Well, I always try and skirt the edges because there's nothing worse than spoiling a horror story for people because, you know, the reveal is all. How much and what is revealed is kind of like a, a bit of a major talking point in this book. Uh, and yes. We'll get to that. But, yeah. but first of all, so this is a horror-centric podcast or horror-adjacent, as I sometimes say. And many people would consider you to be a writer who works primarily in literary rather than genre fiction. Mm -hmm. So do you consider Leave the World Behind to be a departure for you? Do you consider it horror at all? The first thing I would say is that your question betrays a misunderstanding, I think, that writers of literary fiction love to perpetuate that literary fiction is not itself a genre, because it is. It has its own conventions and its own modes, like an interest in the middle class, an interest in domesticity, an interest in family and sex and marriage. So those are the conventions of the literary novels as it's practiced in this country and in the UK also. So that is as much a genre with its own rules as horror or romance or the thriller or the spy novel. Like, it really is. With respect to horror, that is the language that I used to describe this book as I was engaged in writing it. It's hard to figure out how to talk about this book and because it is playing with genre in a very conscious way. Well, yeah, it very much is, because I'll be fully honest with you. I I opened it and found myself for, say, the first 30 pages increasingly frustrated because I thought I'd I'd mistaken a a apocalyptic thriller for a kind of postmodern satire. Exactly. And, and then I found myself from that point onwards increasingly enthralled and sort of seduced, as you as you said before. Mm-hmm. Did you set out to purposefully kind of, you know, slide between genres? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So much of the first 30 pages, as you say, is really about establishing that this is going to be one kind of book. The knock on the door, which is meant to be that kind of big disruption, disrupts the very kind of book that you're reading. So it's not just a plot event that's happening in the story. It changes the experience of reading a story for the person holding the book. But it's not, 
it's not a trick. You know, like I don't, it's so, so it's so complicated to talk about because I don't want it to seem like it's some bad faith exercise where I'm trying to seduce the reader into one thing and then give her something else. I want to show the kind of sliding scale between the contemporary reality, right? If literary fiction just reflects reality, I want to show the reader how easy it is to slide from that reality into something approaching what you and I are describing as horror. Yeah. there is a sense of things you know spiraling out of control and it's the structure of the book almost follows that and that it goes from being this very mannered piece of as you say middle class gazing fiction to being something wholly more uncanny and more unsettling i mean when i all the way through i was reading it and I, i the thing that always fascinates me when it comes to reading reading anyone's book, really, is the kind of the intertexts and, you know, the inspirations. Weirdly, this put me much more in mind, when we're talking horror, at least, of cinematic horror rather than any kind of literary precedent. Because all the way through, I was just getting these... The, the, it was in no way derivative, but it really... I, it felt in parts like, you know, there is the the background kind of haunting of things like a home invasion thriller, something like Michael Haneke's Funny Games. And you've got the paranoia of something like the invasion of the body snatchers. But more and more and more, I, I kept coming back to Jordan Peele's Get Out. And I wonder whether you had any direct frames of reference for this, film, fiction or, or otherwise. Well, certainly I think film is probably the most applicable one to talk about here, because the truth is that I am not a seasoned reader of horror. I have read work that certainly fits in that genre. And in preparation for writing this book, I read Pet Cemetery, which is, I think, a masterpiece of the genre. I read a wonderful book by Ian Reid called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. So I was looking at books that do use the conventions of horror. But the truth is that as a as a human being, the way that I know those conventions best is from cinema. And the, the strange thing to think about is that you don't even have to be someone who watches scary movies to understand when you're getting those conventions. The knock at the door is one. The appearance of people who are a different race is kind of another. The body horror that happens is another. If there's a group of people and one person gets separated from the group, the reader's expectations go up, right? You you understand that nothing good is going to happen to the person who has wandered away from the group. So all of these are conventions that the story is deploying and they elicit a particular response on the part of the reader, even if they're not someone who knows those conventions from a deep reading inside of the genre. And so cinema was a huge point of access for me. And it's it's a very astute comment to bring up Michael Haneke's Funny Games, because that is an extraordinary film, which not only uses the primal fear of random violence, but it suggests that this violence lurks, you know, that it's not, that it's metaphorized, but like the suggestion just being that violence is a part of contemporary life, and you never know when it's coming for you. And that's so terrifying and so true, I think. So I was thinking of Funny Games. Jordan Peele is a really interesting one because I only saw Get Out once. I think I've only seen it that one time um, in the theaters. I think the movie came out 
in 2016, just after the election in this country. But there is a way in which Peel seems to have defined a contemporary way of thinking about race. That if you are playing with race as a subject, and if you're dealing with it as a complex metaphor with a bit of a wink, you know, his sort of his tongue is firmly in his cheek there. It's both very scary and also a metaphor for the experience of blackness, especially masculine blackness in this country. So it's a metaphor, but it's not. And that language is the language that most of us know because of Jordan Peele. It's it's really hard to figure out your own, the ways in which um, you've been influenced, you know? And I will say that I did know that Jordan Peele was looming over me. And so I purposefully avoided watching his second film, Us, until I had finished this book and turned it in. So I watched Us earlier this year, actually during this experience of quarantine. And it was very effective to watch right now because it dramatizes horror inside of a domestic space. So there's a feeling that these people are trapped in this house. There's an extraordinary scene where um, there's a there's a kind of hidden door to the basement where the little boy enters. And that kind of stuff where the, the physical design of the house seems to mimic something about the psyche felt really interesting to me and also felt very akin to what I am doing in Leave the World Behind. So I'm really glad I avoided watching that movie while I was writing this book. Yeah, I can see that. A- another film that is very, very obscure. A lot of people won't have seen this, but I wonder if you have. It's it's a, it's a British kind of quite low-budget horror film called The Children. Oh, I don't know it, no. It's about a couple of families who go on, on a, like a winter holiday to a, a big rented house in the country. And whilst they're there, there is rumour starts to infiltrate through the news and through social media that there is something happening to the children around the country. And then slowly, in quite uncanny ways, the children begin to change. There is a very similar ambiguity at play to what to what you play with in your book. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I recommend you look it up, I think, well, and all the listeners. It's a great little kind of indie, quirky gem. It's pretty good. That sounds great. And actually, you know, it's funny because I think just the, the very notion of being in a house that's somewhat isolated is itself such a convention of the horror genre, but it's also a convention of the literary genre. So there's a wonderful book by Deborah Levy called Swimming Home. And that was a book that I thought a lot about as I was writing this book, where it just takes the idea of a well-to-do family in a new geography. And it shows you that you can bend that to your own will. So, and the tension between doing something in a literary sense or doing something in a horror sense, it just shows you how how closely related those two things can be because a family in a home where they aren't usually could describe many a horror film, but it could also describe many a literary novel. It could. And I, and I wish I could take you back to my old university and get you to speak to some of my lecturers about the fact that, you know, literary fiction is itself a genre. Yeah. <laughs> People are so snobbish about this and it drives me kind of crazy. I think um, especially when, you know, I mentioned Pet Cemetery, a book like that, that elicits such a powerful response on the part of its reader. You can't just discount that as a game of 
genre. It is that. It is that, absolutely. And Stephen King is a very efficient writer, even if he's not, you know, a beautiful stylist the way that someone like Saul Bellow would be. But that is an accomplishment. To elicit a feeling in a reader, a feeling of fear, that is an accomplishment. It really is. And so when I hear writers of literary fiction kind of demean genre, and I don't just mean horror. I mean, I could be talking about romance. I guess I always feel like, well, this many million readers can't be wrong. You know, that, yes, romance as a genre is not as interesting to me as the literary genre. But a book or a writer who can provide comfort or surprise or anything that its reader is looking for, that's no small accomplishment. It really isn't. I always try and broaden the parameters of of discussion by focusing and talking about fear as opposed to horror. And I think fear is a much more interesting concept than a kind of generic label. So this is the broadest question possible, and we will get to specifics of the novel in a moment. But what do you think is the kind of the nexus of fear in your book? I think that the book is a little elusive. So the book describes people trying to identify what's happening in the world, and it doesn't really answer it. So the way that that works for me, or I hope, works for the reader is that you kind of fill in the blank with the thing you're most afraid of. So if you're a parent and you're reading this book and it's describing a parent worrying over their child, you recognize that particular fear because every parent worries over their child, not just about their health or their sadness or, you know, their, their well-being, but in, in a bigger sense, you worry, you know, when they're very small, like, they're so fragile, they're so tiny, will they survive in this difficult world? So that's one kind of fear, and that sort of brings you into the role, the realm of the book itself. There's another way in which the book seems to be describing a climate that is really broken. So if you have a deep fear, I think as I do, of what we've done to the planet, that's your frame of reference as you're reading the book. If you're afraid of what's happening in our politics, that's your frame of reference. If you're afraid of what's happening, you know, with respect to disease, then that can be your frame of reference. So it kind of shifts, I think, for the reader. It becomes kind of a Rorschach test of what you as the reader are most afraid of. In terms of, like, for me, what brought me into it or what is scariest in it is, again, I go back to Stephen King and this thing that he is often quoted as having said, although I don't know if he really said this, but the notion that what animates his most frightening books is his own personal fear with respect to his children. That, you know, being a parent is to willfully enter this state of real fear, of almost existential fear, and that his books are kind of dramatizing that or working that out to some degree. And I think that that's probably true for my approach to the writing of this book. Okay, right. So that's a nice broad answer to a, to a ridiculously broad question. <laughs> and it's kind of so it's kind of a paint your paint your own apocalypse really. Kind of. That that works. So so let's get into specifics then. In a slim novel in relatively terse prose, you manage to pack in a lot of theme and incident. So let let's get into it. I'm going to give you a question that my wife 
ask me to ask you, which I think actually is a great question. So I was talking to my wife about this book last night in bed, and, and it transpired that she was far more fascinated by the idea of the, the, the kind of uncomfortable relationship between a house owner and a house guest mm-hmm. and who in, in that rental capacity under those strange circumstances becomes the host. And she wanted me to ask, this is not a thing I normally do, by the way, but <laughs> she, she kind of put the question in my mind of which of those ideas came to you first, the apocalypse or this strange, um, as you say, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf tension? Well, I think that they've, they've functioned in tandem. I always knew that the book would conclude the way that it does. I always knew that it was talking about not just what's happening inside of the house, but what's happening inside of, in, the, in the world at large. So the discomfort that you experience when you're inside the house, just because you're so confused about what role everyone is meant to be playing, mirrors I hope the discomfort that you have about the world itself, where the world just feels unsteady and you aren't sure who's in charge, who's the protagonist of the story, like what's supposed to happen. And so the two work in tandem, but I knew that the strangeness of the domestic arrangement was going to mirror the strangeness of what the book was ultimately talking about. Okay. Right. I shall, I shall report back to with, with my findings. <laughs> so yeah, th- there is this strange, this very odd living kind of experience that's going on. And, and let's talk about these four characters. So to, to refresh um, listeners' memories, you've got Clay and Amanda, who, who are the, the, the white kind of middle-class renting couple. And there is Ruth and George, or GH, who are the um, African-American owners of the Long Island house. Okay. Do you have any affection for these characters? Because they all seem like, not all, but in the main, they seem like deeply flawed people to me. My response to that is who isn't flawed? You know, like I couldn't write even a short novel about people who I just despised or was trying to use to make some other point or to punish them inside of the system of the novel. They are flawed but I have a real fondness for them, for their particular delusions. George's delusion is that there's um, a rational explanation for everything in the world. You know, Ruth's particular delusion seems to be that, like, well, we have art and there's some solace in that, and we have family and there's some solace in that. Amanda's motivation to protect her children reveals some of her more unpalatable opinions about race and about who she is in the world clay is kind of charmingly ineffectual he's really unable to do anything and he fails there's a particular moral failing that clay goes through in this book that is really horrific and you know he really comes up short but to me that's what people are like you know we tell ourselves that in a moment of crisis we would be heroic but there's just no way to know until you find yourself in a moment of crisis. You know, we know all of those stories of the heroes of the Second World War, for example, the people who stood up and hid their neighbors or whatever. But we also know that there's a much bigger story of people 
confronted with a world going mad who said, oh, well, the world is going mad. Like, I, I, they're, they're coming for my neighbors, but what can I do? So in those circumstances, which, wh- who would we be? Would we be the hero who stands up and hides your neighbor? Or would we just be the person who kind of goes along to get along? It's an uncomfortable question to answer, and that's sort of where Clay, what Clay is revealed to be in the book. So they're not heroes, these people, but they are people, I think, just like you and I. Yeah, and I think for me, maybe, maybe the reason I was so uncomfortable with some of these characters, in particular Clay and Amanda, is because I think they they expose the complacency of prejudice, even amongst the most well-meaning everyday liberal people. I felt things shown back at myself um, that I was uncomfortable with, thinking, you know, in a crisis, how would I react, exactly as you say. Mm -hmm. I mean, race plays a huge thematic role in the novel, as does class and privilege. But race in particular is, there's there's a lot of quite, quite, you know, ironic comment in there and, and quite, you know, brutal satire. But do you see the dynamic between these characters as kind of representative of society in America and and perhaps the world currently? I don't know if it's representative or if there's a suggestion that maybe a way of thinking about race becomes a distraction from a way of engaging with other questions. I don't know. I don't think there's an easy answer there. Clay and Amanda's kind of almost, uh, what's the word, instinctive racism is troubling and frustrating. But it's also, in a strange way, defensible. When these Black homeowners arrive, Amanda's response is to say, well, they couldn't possibly own the house because they're Black, right? This is just what she thinks to herself. That's not defensible. But She tells herself that she's motivated by fear for her children, that this is some sort of home invasion scenario. And as a mother, her responsibility is to protect her children from crime. That's a little more defensible. That's a sort of an understandable position. And so these are complicated issues. And it's not as clear cut as it, as we sometimes want it to be. Sometimes you have to just sit with the discomfort of saying, well, Amanda's response is plainly racist, but also I kind of understand where she's coming from. And then what does that say about me? Or what does that say about how broken our society is when it comes to a conversation about race? So it's a, it's a tough one to answer, but I don't think that she is purely bad. And I don't think that he, that uh, Clay is purely bad. I think it's, I think it's just a complicated issue. It's a very muddy issue. Yeah, and I think it's a much better book for being muddy because, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people would have written this book and it would have been much more obvious and overt what what was being said. Whereas you do provide that kind of like rationalisation, I suppose is the best word for people's prejudice. So uh, there's one part, for example, where Clay says that, you know, he, he quite firmly says that he was not going to say that all black people look the same to him. But then, <laughs> right. but, but then he immediately rationalises why someone may think that. Yeah. And it, it feels like by presenting the kind of the, the interior monologue as you do, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, a much, it's a much more complex and nuanced look at... I suppose the difference between whole scale racism of someone like Trump 
and 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 whole scale societal institutional racism, which is horrendously indefensible. But then there's also the, the tiny moments of weakness that that mm. everyone has, and, and you aren't cruel about that. You're actually quite forgiving about those those moments of weakness that people have, particularly in crisis. Because we're just a product of something bigger, and so it's hard to it's hard to fault people for these responses that have been trained into them by exposure to television, by exposure to the forces of society itself. So sort of, if society has told a white woman like Amanda for all the years that she's been alive that blackness is other and to be feared, when she confronts it, is she to be blamed for fearing it? It's, it's a difficult thing to untie, and I think that that particular discomfort for the reader is just in having to sit there and look at it and say, yeah, it's it's indefensible, but also kind of understandable. What isn't as defensible, in my eyes, is it's a recurrent motif that comes up. And I think it would be easy to overlook when you've got such an overt kind of pairing of, of, of black and white protagonists. But there's these quite, you, you include these quite frequent references to um, Native Americans all the way through. Like there's one part, for example, where Clay is is smoking and he thinks to himself that, and I'm going to quote you here, he thinks to himself that, quote, smoking tethered you to history itself. It was a patriotic act, or it once had been anyway, like owning the slaves or killing the Cherokee. Yeah. And that that really yeah. interested me because from, from a horror and gothic perspective, you know, slavery and, you know, the genocide of the American Indian are the two great primal sins in American history, kind of along with the witch trials. And they underpin all American Gothic and all American horror. And I wondered if you were alluding a little bit to this yourself, a kind of reckoning with the nation's kind of past and neuroses. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's such a, again, that's like a great cinematic trope. The idea that like the land itself is haunted by the specter of the genocide that was committed here at this nation's founding 300 years ago, right? So that like, that will forever haunt everything that takes place on this land. And so when Clay is describing, and you're right, it happens more than once, especially because Long Island, like, you know, we know, at least because I live here, I know a little bit about the history of this country's Aboriginal people related to this geography and we all know that history ended terribly, brutally, horribly. And um, that is the ghost that haunts this land. And so it's kind of, uh, it's a joy to remind the reader of that, especially in the context of a story that is shaped like a horror, because there's some familiarity with that. So the reader understands, I think, what is being said, because they recognize, as you're saying, this is a convention of the American Gothic, and they recognize that. Yeah, I mean, even Pet Cemetery, as you say, as an inspirational text is, is a similar thing. You know, it's like spoiled ground. There's also this sort of fetishizing of the Native American. Like, Clay references them several times in, like, almost aspirational tones. Um, there's a part where he's lighting the barbecue and he thinks about generations ago, and I think he, the, the quote is, some shirtless Iroquois in hide loincloth stoking a fire so the flesh of his flesh might dine on flesh. Yeah. And 
that coupled with the fact that he so often laments all the things he doesn't know how to do yeah it made me wonder how much this is a novel about a crisis in masculinity oh yes huge that's i think a hugely important aspect of it i mean we see it play out with respect to masculinity because it's embodied by clay and because there is this sort of maybe incorrect assumption of masculinity as being related to efficacy or like ability right but for sure clay's romanticizing of this historic past this mythic past really because this is not something he knows about this is just an idea that he's holding up has to do with his belief in the masculine responsibility that as the dad he is required to take action and roll up his sleeves and get things done. And that's sort of what he thinks is his role in this moment. And he's not equal to that task. He can't do it. I do think it's, I'm having some fun with Clay and that's a particular drama that Clay is going through. And maybe it's because that's how I feel. I mean, I can't do anything without the aid of my cell phone. I really can't, like I, I can't. And so when I'm talking about these people feeling totally adrift because they are untethered from a cell phone signal. I'm talking about myself. I'm talking about that particular problem of contemporary life that we seem to have solved every problem we have by carrying around a thousand dollar computer in our pockets all the time. But then it's just made us babies. You know, we don't, we don't know how to make our way in the world because we're not listening to our instinct. We're not listening to our own minds anymore. We're listening to a device. Yeah, I, I've thought about this a lot because I, I used to teach in university and, and it, it would always strike me that incredibly intelligent students, and because I'm, I'm not going to fall into this trap of saying that, that kids are getting dumber because it's quite the opposite, <laughs> quite the opposite. But there is a difference, I think, these days between critical thinking, which amongst you know university students is at an all-time high, and knowledge. And it seems to me that, we've got a much more socially aware, emotionally aware, critically thinking populace, mm-hmm. but they know less because we've got these remote brains in our pockets yeah. Yeah. and we don't need to know things. And there's, there's a, actually, there's, this jumps forward to a question I was going to ask you because there's one point where Amanda says that um, her kids rely on their phones to tell them how the weather is and that mm-hmm. everything about the world around them, they can't even see it anymore but through that prism. Mm-hmm. Yet, weirdly, it's the adults in the book who suffer with that far more than the children. Yes. Like, like the youngest child, Rose, actually has a book that she wants that gives her comfort. You know, were you making a point there about the irony of that, that the parents are coping far less well? Yes, absolutely. So I am 43, and the phone is something that this technology has only existed in my adulthood, right? I can remember a time in which I had to for example, navigate the highways using a map and handwritten directions. My children don't know that. They don't know what that is like. So they won't maybe have that particular skill of being able to look at a map and write down the directions and then get in the car and not have to look at the directions because you're driving. You know, like I remember that they won't have access to that. But as you are saying with respect to your own students, that even if they don't have access to what we think of as this kind of intelligence or ability with the real world because the phone has got in the way, I do think that young people have a little more clarity morally and maybe ethically about 
how the world functions. And so in this book, even though Archie and Rose, the children, they do miss their phones and they do miss their Netflix and they do lament all of that stuff. They also are the only ones who are actually paying attention to what's happening. And they are the only ones who see the most tangible clues that something is amiss in the world. Their parents and the other adults simply spend all their time drinking and talking and conjecturing and getting carried away and having sex. And they're not really paying attention at all. Yeah, I'm thinking on my feet now, but it's, it's almost like the kids are living in the horror novel and, and the parents are living in the middle class literary fiction. <laughs> well, I think that there's also a suggestion. I mean, to me, what happens when the children, there's a scene where the children go out into the woods. The adults, Clay has gone off for a drive and Amanda is sitting at the pool with George and Ruth and the kids go play a game in the woods. And to me, that is when the book enters this territory of almost fairy tale. And there is so much fairy tale and so much folklore and so much myth about children having access to some intelligence that adults do not have or, or children still living in some world that is mystical and a little frightening in a way that adults do not. And I, that is, I love that scene. Um, if you can say that you love something that you wrote, um, I do. I love that scene because to me, that is one of the scariest parts of the book is when they wander into the woods and, the book begins to talk for the first time about everything that's happening on the planet. And it, there's a reason that that happens, I think, when your attention, when the narrative attention is focused on the children and not the adults. Yeah, speaking about what's happening on the planet, I mean, we've briefly kind of traced the edges of that. But as you say, it's a rush-ass test. Um, like I, as I said, a paint-your-own-apocalypse. Was that always the, the intention, to have this purely ambiguous thing going on elsewhere? Did you set out to do it that way? Yes. I think that what is interesting in the book is not the answer to what is happening, whether there's been a war, whether there's been some kind of superstorm, whether there's been some kind of accident, what, you know, those answers are elusive because that is the character of contemporary life. The answers are elusive right now. I mean, I'm speaking to you the day before the presidential election and the uncertainty that hangs over this country right now is in some ways the only certainty we have. And so the interest for me in terms of subject is not in what's causing this problem. Are there aliens? Are there ghosts? Is it the devil? You know, that's not interesting to me. What's interesting to me is how do these somewhat normal people respond in a moment of true crisis and reckoning? Yeah. And I find the single scariest line in the novel that just sent chills through me is there's, there's a scene uh, very late late in the novel um, where Amanda s- sort of thinks to herself in an internal voice that she would feel much better if she just knew what was happening. And then the narrator interjects and says, these words were not true, but she did not know that. Mm-hmm. And I, I found that really frightening in, in the wake of, you know, COVID and in the wake of, you know, a potential Trump re-election. I, I make no bones on this podcast where my allegiances lie in uh, in that issue. And and yeah, in, in the wake of all these things, it, you, that that's the part that really kind of, you know, highlighted the existential dread at the heart of this book. It, it felt <laughs> like that, you know, we live in a world now where we can actually cope with any kind of crisis if we just know the extent of it 
and the parameters of it and the longevity of it. But without that knowledge, it becomes a kind of infinite threat yeah. that social media and everything else just takes and 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 fuels. And, and in its final essence, I feel like this book really dramatizes that brilliantly. Thank you. I think that I think that's right. I think that's right. I think that we would love to know the story. We would love to forecast to the moment at which some genius says to us, we have a vaccine for COVID-19 and we have a plan to disseminate this to the entire population and the world will go back to the way that we once knew it to be soon in six months time or whatever. But I think we have to accept that that's not really how the world works. Like that's how movies work and that's how books sometimes work, but that's not how this is going to happen. And it's frustrating and it's difficult and it's hard to reckon with. And it forces you to sit in a space that is much more precarious and much more frightening. So the way this book concludes, which is by never really telling you what's happened, if indeed anything has happened. I think it's clear that something has happened, but it's not clear what that thing is. But the book simply suggests that maybe that's how it was yesterday. Maybe that's how it was 50 years ago. Maybe that's how it's always been, that we don't know the end of the story. And that's what's so frightening about living at all. What I've got to ask, though, and you don't have to tell me what it is, obviously, because that would be ridiculous, but... Do you know what the what what's happened? I don't. And it's so funny because this is a very much a question that I think writers like to ask. And um, I don't know what's happened. There are, of course, many concrete answers inside of the book. Uh, a television star has been hit by a car. The ceiling at a prison in the state of Georgia has collapsed. So you have these like tangible facts that you can hold on to. But they aren't tied together in a system. There's no logic that the book says, here's what's happened. I include myself in that. Like, I don't really know. So for an ex- for example, the characters in the book hear a noise. And it is a noise that is sort of beyond our working definition of noise. It does something really horrible to them. It breaks the glass in the house. It, it maybe precipitates illness in one of the people in the book. So it feels much bigger than anything that we can understand in our reality. At some point in the drafts of this book, my editors pressured me to provide a little more clarity. And in that moment, I decided what the noise would be. But I didn't have an answer when I first wrote that scene. So the noise happened in the early drafts of the book. And it was not until the later drafts of the book that I explained the source of that noise. It wasn't interesting to me initially to know where that noise came from. It was simply interesting to me to provide, to like apply this pressure to the scene. And that's what I did. And so I just, I answered it retrospectively. And I could have concluded the book by saying, here's what actually happened. And there's such great comfort in that, like to say, okay, here's, here's who the killer was. Here's what was under the bed. Here's the moment it all went wrong. Like, we we expect that from our negotiations with horrific movies, right? Like when you watch The Exorcist and you understand that she's been playing with the Ouija board and has invited the devil in, right? Like that's sort of like a satisfying moment where you're like, okay, at least I have an answer for this yeah. horrifying thing. But it's much more unsettling to me when the book doesn't do that. Like, so if if this book is a work of horror 
the thing that is most horrific about it to me is that it doesn't ever tell you who the bad guy is. It doesn't ever tell you what the scary thing is. And that feels really, truly frightening to me anyway. Yeah, I was speaking to an author called Colin Dickey um, a few weeks ago, and he he writes... I know Colin. Yeah, he's lovely. And yeah, Colin and I spoke about why human beings require mystery and why we have an obsession with the unexplained. For him, his argument is that it is a... It's a comforting thing to still have mystery in the world, to think that the maps are not entirely coloured in. Um, whereas mm-hmm. in this book, it feels like the exact inverse of that, in that the only way <laughs> you could really achieve the terror that you do is by not answering the question. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad that you did as frustrated as I was by the fact that you didn't. It is frustrating, but it is a reminder of what Colin is saying, that like maybe we do need that. And I think the book even suggests that that's, again, it's like the book suggests that that's always been the way. It's always been the way that reality has worked. It's always been the bargain of being alive is that mystery, that not knowing. It's it's difficult to reckon with in the structure of a book, but it also, as big and broad and outsized as the events in this book are, that particular mystery, preserving that mystery, is what allows the book to function almost as realism because it reminds us of this very anxious moment in which we find ourselves. And it shows us that this anxious moment is not just a blip. It's not that, that the comfort that we are remembering when Obama was president or when Bush was president or when Reagan was president, like whatever your sort of notion of a more comforting cultural moment was, is still an illusion. It's always been this way, I think. That's a terrifying thought. <laughs> We're all sitting here waiting for it, like, to slide the dial back to vanilla a little bit. And I, yeah, that Well, is... I mean, that's not to say that we can't do certain, that certain steps won't actually come closer to saving us, at least psychically. Like, yeah. you know, when, when Reagan was president, things were not great for a lot of people in this country, but I'm not sure we were actively being psychically tortured by the persistence of that person as we are right now no no but to talk about hope it it does feel to me like the novel ends on a kind of principle of hope but but what's your take on that do you see it as as a hopeful conclusion i i do in a strange way like it's not uh it's not i wouldn't describe the book as uplifting but i will (laughs) I will say that I do think there is a sense of optimism at the book's conclusion. I think there's a suggestion that we have something in this moment to hold on to and to care about and to put our faith in, and that is our children and our future. I think that it's, and I, that is, that reflects how I feel. I think that young people today have a clarity about the world in which we live that adults do not. And I often say this, and I think it's really think it's true that in this country you have to be 35 to be the president of the United States. And I actually think maybe we would be better served if you had to be between the ages of like 25 and 36. That if you had to be part of a generation looking forward, as opposed to governing from the very end of your life, as our leaders tend to, that it would change everything about the way this country and the society works. But yeah, when I think about however dark a moment this is in human history, and I try to find some optimism, I find it in young people. I do. I find it in young people. And so you've got to hold on to something. No, I agree with you. Like When I was saying, like when I used to teach, I was, I was always taken aback by 
just how engaged and kind of emotionally aware and responsible sort of 18 to 21 year olds were compared to when I was. Uh, It's a a really trivial, it's a really trivial um, reference, but in the, in the, the the comedy, you know, uh, 21 Jump Street with Uh Channing Tatum and stuff, there's there's a bit in, there's a scene in that that I just think is, is so profound in, in where they go back to school and they, they talk about how it, you are cool. You become cool by, by essentially being the bully, you know, and by being intolerant. And then when they, when they turn up at school, they realize that tolerance is the order of the day. Yeah. It, yeah. It feels like, you know, at, at least that, at least that offers some promise for tomorrow, if, if nothing else. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a really, like, it's a nice thing to hold on to. And I think it's, I really think it's true. I think that we have a political class, an adult political class who pretends to be so stymied by conversations around sex, for example, sex and gender and pronouns. And, you know, the the notion that like gender, the notion that sex may not exist as a binary really flummoxes people of my age and above. But young people are completely unbothered by this really. And truly like, it just seems to be like young people have a natural tolerance for a world that is shifting that they are helping to shift. And I love that. I think that's really lovely. And like the notion that they see the world not as more complex, but that they're able to deal with that emotionally and intellectually is really reassuring when we're being governed by absolutists and frankly morons you know yeah i'll be, I'll be up all night tomorrow night me, me, and, me and the dog yeah sitting there watching it it feels like this is a kind of referendum on um the kind of politics we want going forwards whether we're going to accept you know this level of it and it's the same in the uk you know whether we're going to accept this level of of discourse and, and and contempt or whether we're going to demand something better. So, so, so fingers crossed, but to, to finish with a really trivial question after all of that profundity, what's the latest on the Netflix adaptation of this book? I'm not really involved. So uh, Sam Esmail, he'll write the script and he'll direct the film. And I just think he's really the perfect person for this material. His interest in his work to date has been in a lot of what you and I are talking about, the discomfort of contemporary life, the strange, muddy water where things aren't necessarily morally good or bad, but they're more complicated than that. I I mean, I just, when I think about, like, of all of the people to take this material and make something of it, for it to land in Sam's hands just feels so right to me. It just feels so perfect to me. Um... So I I kind of await seeing what his vision looks like. I really am so curious to see how he does the hard work of transforming a book into a film. Like that's never an easy that's never an easy lift. But I think if anyone can do it, it's Sam for sure. Is it still Denzel involved? Yeah. So Denzel Washington and Julie Roberts are uh, attached to Star. And again, when you think about like you know <laughs> for for the work to be in such hands just feels astonishing. I mean, Denzel Washington, there's a moment in the book where Amanda even describes GH as resembling Denzel Washington. He embodies the very cultural idea of a kind of Black respectability of his own generation. It just feels so perfect to have him perform 
this role. I uh, I look forward to watching that whenever it comes out. Yeah, yeah, that that is that is great. Right to finish off, Roman. Um, I have four questions that I ask each of my guests. If you wouldn't mind me flinging them at you, and you just give us the first one that comes to mind. Of course, is that okay? Yes, that's great. So you've already said that you're not an avid reader of horror, um, but I'd be interested to know. Question one: Insofar as you are a fan of horror, what was your gateway to the genre? I think it would have to be the murder mystery, which is a different genre altogether. So when I was eight, I was an avid reader of Agatha Christie murders, and I absolutely loved the confrontation between these genteel people and these horrific crimes. It's just suggested something so irreverent and so it just felt so shocking that there were you're, you're always in this sort of beautiful country estate and someone had been horribly killed and i just absolutely love that particular collision and it reminded me just as we were saying about michael haneke like it's just a reminder of the horror and violence that are sort of underneath all of society at all times have you read The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle? No, I haven't. So it's Stu Turton, who I interviewed a few episodes ago. He he writes, pastiche is probably the wrong word, but let's let's use it for now, pastiches of, of Gilded Age murder mysteries. And he wrote one called, as I say, The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. I think in the US it's The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Uh, and it is a murder mystery juxtaposed with a kind of black mirror sci-fi overture i love that and our entire man and his entire conversation was about where the murder mystery meets horror i, I would recommend that a lot if, you, oh, yeah. if you're into that kind of juxtaposition i do think the murder mystery it says a lot about the character of society it really does like these it's always about these genteel wonderful like respectable people doing terrible things so there's there's something really horrific there, hidden in there. Yeah, I agree. So, second question. If you re- could recommend one book for our listeners, not written by yourself, what would it be and why? So, I'm going to mention a book that I thought a lot about as I was writing this book, um, which is Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. Oh, It is such an extraordinary, extraordinary novel. It's just a true accomplishment as a work of art, but deeply rewarding if you're a writer. So, because it, it forces you to understand how the book functions, but and as deeply rewarding if you're a reader, because the way that it works on you is so magical. It's just an absolute, like, truly an astonishing book. Like one of my all-time favorite reads. Really, an incredible book. Couldn't agree more. It's one of my one of my top ten favorite books I've ever read. Yeah, um, I gave that to my eighty. 80- year old father to read who is you know he's battle hardened by life and um i remember he came out of the bathroom having finished it in the bath and just looked devastated in a way that i've never seen anybody be affected by a book before yeah that is a masterpiece it really is a masterpiece yeah what piece of advice if i was so bold would you give to a fledgling horror author such as myself i mentioned never let me go and we talked about this with respect to my own book There's a tension between the information that you possess as the writer and the information that the reader possesses as the reader. And negotiating that balance is how you actually provoke an emotional response in the reader. So if the the interest is in frightening them, you have to tinker with the amount of information that they have access to. And I see that when I read Stephen King. And I saw it, I mentioned Ian Reid's book, 
I'm thinking of ending things. You see that in that book. You see that I think that is such an as such an important component of how horror works. But as I said, with Ishiguro, Never Let Me Go is not a horror novel, although I think it comes close. It's really it's a science fiction novel, I suppose, but really it's just a beautiful novel. But so much of its efficacy has to do with this particular tension between what the reader knows and what the book knows and how those two things are negotiated over the course of those 300 pages. So I think if you if you think about the approach to a book as that, then I think that will really clarify something. Yeah, that's something I'm really struggling with at the moment in my current efforts at a novel. So yeah, that is that is a, a piece of advice that's very kind of resonant with me at the minute. So yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> Uh, and my last question, and my favourite question, um, as I always say, we're talking scared today, so tell me, Raman, what truly scares you? Well, I have put it all down in the pages of this book. Everything that happens in this book has to do with my own primal fears. I mentioned before thinking about my own children, And that's a huge part of what scares me. Um, One of the liberations of parenthood is that you get to shift your ego and your fear out of your own body into another. That's the sort of terrifying trap of being a parent. As the book does begin to level with the reader about certain things that are happening, everything that I mention are the things that I most fear. A plane crashing is one of them. Being trapped in an elevator until your death is another. Being trapped in a tunnel until your death is another. A woman drowns her children in the bathtub. That's another. So I got to just sort of use the opportunity of writing this book to exercise all of my own deeper fears. Something happening to my teeth is another. Uh, Confronting an animal where it doesn't belong is another. So I just got to sort of like, there's an interesting, like, interesting, I say only to like, me and maybe like my shrink if I ever hire one, um, the way this book reveals like my own fears, the way it enumerates my own fears. So after an hour of talking about, you know, the neuroses of the middle class and, and race and society and all these things, in that last answer there, you've just given every horror fan ample reason to read the book. You just <laughs> listed about, you know, a dozen things there that make it sound like the, the biggest nightmare ever put on the page. So that, yeah, that's probably quite a good way to finish. <laughs> <laughs> Roman Alam, thank you very much for talking scared with us. Thank you so much. It was great. Ding dong, the witch is dead. <laughs> yeah, that's right. In the time between that interview and the recording of this outro, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have been elected to the White House. You know, Trump may go full bunker still, uh, and who knows what the rest of the year will bring, but today feels like a good day for the world. In many ways, Lead the World Behind is the perfect book to read this week, because it gives us a chance to think about what might have been and, you know, what could still happen, I suppose. But for now, we can read it safe in the knowledge that things aren't as bad as they, you know, they could have been. I recommend all the books that we discuss on this show. And, you know, after all, if I didn't like them, I wouldn't feature them. But Leave the World Behind is is something a bit different. It shows what literary fiction can do, how it can terrify just as much as kind of the gore and the gru of a pulpy monster novel. But it also reminds you not to be too snobby about genre. As Ruman said, books should make you feel as well as think. Everyone read it. 
It's out from Bloomsbury tomorrow, November 12th. Roman and I didn't mention too many books in this chat. You know, instead we dwelled on cinematic references. And if you haven't seen some of those films we discussed, definitely check them out. I mentioned The Children, which is a bit of an obscure one, but definitely worth finding. It was directed by Tom Shankland in 2008, if that helps narrow things down. Oh, and if you haven't seen Funny Games by Michael Haneke, then then definitely see that. But make sure you're prepared for just how disturbing it is. It is not a Saturday night date movie. Ideally, see the Austrian original, but the shot-for-shot US remake isn't bad either. As a throwaway reference that's nothing to do with the chat we just had, um, I watched a horror movie this week on Netflix called His House. It's had a fairly high-profile release, but it's quite a small-budget movie. If you like horror films and you want to see a different POV to a horror film, definitely watch it. It concerns two immigrants from the South Sudan facing serious trauma on their way there. They're they're then kind of essentially stuck in this run-down house on a sink estate where they're told they can't leave um, or or they'll face deportation. And of course, the house is inhabited by more than just them. Absolutely brilliant. A, a great sort of treatise on trauma and guilt and all those those things that fuel elevated horror. Really good. His House on Netflix now. So lastly, we mentioned a few books, only a few, but they are worth following up on. Uh, Roman mentioned Swimming Home by Deborah Levy. It's not a book I've read, not a book I was really aware of. It's not a horror book. Uh, I've had a bit of a look into it and it does sound quite creepy with a, a kind of misery sort of vibe to it about someone's vacation that's interrupted by an obsessive fan sounds great i'll look into it when i get time pet cemetery we discuss roman read it before writing leave the world behind pet cemetery is you know it's the book that even stephen king says he wish he hadn't written it it's incredibly grim it's incredibly sad it's incredibly brilliant uh, most people i imagine most modern horror fans will have read pet cemetery if you haven't give it a go it's peak King and it's peak 80s horror. It'll make you scared of cats forever after as well. And lastly, the pick of the bunch this week, Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. The less I say about that, the better. It's a book to be experienced knowing nothing about it. It will break your heart. As I said, in my all-time top 10 reads, absolute masterpiece. Give Never Let Me Go a chance. So that's it for this week. Um, I'm pleased to say that the world seems a little bit brighter than it did this time last week when I was sat up at 3am watching John King on CNN give us all what seems to be bad news. Yeah, things looking good. So pay your taxes, stand up to liars and bullies, demand change. And remember, when you book a hotel for a major media event, make sure it is the hotel you think you're booking. (laughs) Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared.